Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction. And I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. We are now in 47 different countries, and I'm proud to say that as a new show, that is quite an accomplishment. It just shows me and our listeners that there are people from all over the world that need encouragement. And that's what this show is about. People who are ordinary, that have endured extraordinary situations and circumstances because they never, ever gave up hope. Now, I appreciate each one of you listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for leaving your reviews and your comments. It's what makes this show a success. With me today, I am so excited to interview Keith Dion. Keith I met online a few months ago and have followed his career, which is amazing. You are in for a huge treat today, and when you go to the show notes and listen to his um, various recordings and YouTube, you are going to be not only impressed and amazed, but entertained. Keith has had an astounding career as a musician, a songwriter, a producer, and filmmaker, most well-known as being the producer, manager, and band leader for the late Noel Redding of the Jimi Hendrix Experience. He also has produced records for Arthur Lee and Love and has played in New Zealand's classic cult band, the Ponsonby DCs, as well as San Francisco alternative groups, the Aphelias, 3.05 a.m., and Corsica, producing records for all of them along the way. Over the years, he's also recorded or performed with the members of the Kinks, Finn Lizzy, Santana, The Counting Crows, Weather Report, Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, and the Mahavishnu Orchestra. I might be pronouncing that wrong. I apologize. Most recently, he's released the very critically acclaimed collaboration with... Jefferson Starship members Deanna Mangano and Prairie Prince. Reno, Nevada and other songs of gambling, vice, and betrayal is the name. Oh, as the great American robber baron. So he's going to share a lot more of this uh, with us. Welcome, Keith. Well, thanks, Carol. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. How are you today, by the way? Well, I am fine. Great. And you are, I understand, in San Francisco, and you are enjoying some rain. 
Oh, yeah. We live right here, or I live right here on Pacific Coast Highway in the outer Sunset District. And it's pouring with rain, and it's very welcome as we've had like a three- or four-year drought. So it's, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> no kidding. Now, where's your accent from, Keith? Well, I grew up in New Zealand. You mentioned uh, the New Zealand cult group I was in, the Ponsonby DCs. Even though I was born in Southern California, my parents and our family moved to New Zealand when I was about 13 years old. So I lived there for quite some time, but then moved back here to San Francisco about 30 years ago, where I continued being a musician. Well, let us start with what it was like growing. I did read your bio, and I was quite moved by it as well. And again, like I said, the premise of this show is people who have had extraordinary circumstances to overcome, and you certainly fit that category. Let's start with what it was like growing up as a child of a Vietnam vet who abused you, yeah. Who, who suffered with PTSD yeah. and then who tried to kill you and your twin brother. So that's quite, quite the story there. Let us hear it. Okay. Well, all was fine until the Vietnam War. My father, just to give you some background, he was a major in the Marine Corps and he was a lifer. He just wasn't a Vietnam War veteran. He was a veteran of World War II and Korea where he was seriously wounded and as well as doing two tours of duty in Vietnam. So I was pretty much, I was born and then grew up on Marine Corps bases here on the West Coast in California my whole life. And him being a major, he was actually, yeah, he was a major. He was an infantry battalion attack commander. So that's about as hardcore as it gets. No kidding. And... My start, what, what was really interesting about that, before Vietnam, the public as well as the military had a different view of the military because when you think about it, we just come off World War II, and let's face it, World War II, there's absolutely no doubt who the bad guys were and who the good guys were. Good point. And there was a lot of honor with you know, being in the military and being associated with that. There wasn't so much politics involved and partisanship involved. So it was a very honorable thing to have come back from World War II and beaten the fascists and the Nazis. So, so growing up on these Marine Corps bases and having my father being a major, we all, you know, we enjoyed a very good lifestyle. He was very, a very honorable person very highly esteemed in the community. As far as show business goes with me, my start in show business actually happened in the early 60s. My father was in charge. He was put in charge of recruitment for the Marine Corps and having a twin brother. When we were four years old, he had us dressed up in Marine Corps blues (laughs) uniforms and we were paraded around and put in newspaper ads, on posters, even on television, and on, <laughs> really? and on parades for recruitment purposes for the Marine Corps. So that I look back, and I've even got video of this that we've used in one of our music videos called You Don't Know the Half of It, which is a whole other story. Oh, wow. You Don't Know the Half of It. And so, yeah. My twin brother and I, cute little four-year-old kids in miniature dress blues, Marine Corps (laughs) uniforms, were used for recruitment purposes in what was leading up to the Vietnam War. So we were, again, enjoying a very, not lavish, but very comfortable middle-class lifestyle with my career military officer father. Things took a bad turn, as you 
as most of you and your listeners will know, when the Vietnam War kicked in, because that was not a popular war. There was a lot of people that was against it. The American public eventually rose up and had the thing stopped because it was so immoral. And it was, you know, quite interesting. Leading up, another vivid memory I have of this period, right before my father was deployed to Vietnam, he ended up having a job. And sometimes I would even accompany him in an official Marine Corps car where it was his job to go and knock on the doors of parents or wives of soldiers who had been killed in mm. Vietnam and to give them a flag and to give them the official government console us for the death of their loved one. And I remember that being seven or eight years old and watching this from the back of the car. That was like, wow, what, oh, what, what an impact. Yeah, I'll never forget that. I'll tell you that much. So at this point, toward the late 60s, my father then, you know, he wanted, he was a professional Marine, you know, he was an infantry battalion attack commander. He wanted to do, you know, what he did best, which was fight in war. So he requested to be deployed to Vietnam and he went there and he did two tours. And when he came back, he was a very changed man. Let me tell you that much. Mm. He was always a very strict disciplinarian. But when he came back, it was he had definitely had suffered from PTSD. And as you know, at that point, that wasn't even recognized as an affliction. Right. As a psychological affliction. You know, tough Marines were just supposed to suck it up and not show grief or not show anger or not show you know, weakness. And for whatever reason, within a year of him coming back from the two tours of duty, which is around 1971, he decided, along with my mother, that we were going to leave the United States because at this point he had retired from the Marine Corps and being a lifer and with a 27-year uh, tour in the Marine Corps, he had quite a big pension. So he thought that his pension would go further and overseas, so that's why he decided to take us to New Zealand. Thinking back, I'm pretty sure another reason for him to leave the United States was that he wanted to get away from the Vietnam War protests, which were in full swing by mm. 1971. And I don't think that he could face the fact that the whole country was in an uproar about that war, and the vast majority of the country wanted that war stopped. And I don't think he could face that. So that's why we moved to New Zealand in 1971. Mm -hmm. The violence and the rage was just uncontrollable. You know, he was completely out there smashing things, beating the hell out of me and my brother. And it was he made all of our lives a complete misery because of that. If he had only or if PTSD had been recognized as a mental condition, he could have probably gotten help. But then again, being a infantry battalion attack commander, big tough Marine, he probably would have saw that as a sign of weakness. So he wouldn't have probably done that. So he just went with the flow, which was ended up being some very, very strange and violent behavior, let me tell you. So by the time we moved to New Zealand, it had really you know, escalated. His bizarre behavior and violent behavior had really escalated. And this was shown by my mother and her increased drinking to get away from him. Mm. All of my brother, my brother and I just wanted to get away from him as much as, as far as we possibly could. I have an older sister. Her, her name is, was Carrie. She's now deceased, unfortunately. But she was 
spared a lot of this. She was four years older than us. So by the time we moved to New Zealand, my brother and I were just starting high school. She was just starting college. So she managed to move out of the house and go to college. We moved to Christchurch, New Zealand. So she was spared a lot of this, you know, outrageous, violent, ugly mm-hmm. behavior. And she was never the brunt of it anyway, because she was a girl. She was not expected to follow in my father's military footsteps and join the Marine Corps or the Navy as a career officer. That was the expectation that me and my brother, Kevin, we were going to follow in his footsteps and do and, you know, and do that, which, of course, watching him deteriorate before our eyes and watching all this violent, psychotic behavior, I, from my, you know, for one, was just thinking, you know, what, I'm going to join the Marine Corps and end up like you? Forget it. <laughs> I want to be a musician. I want to be a musician. <laughs> so another key point here, before we left New Zealand and while my father was in Vietnam, Of course, we're talking about the Woodstock generation and the Summer of Love and all that business. So my favorite musician at the time was, of course, Jimi Hendrix. And that is what made me want to become a guitar player and a musician, just, you know, being inspired by him and everything that he was doing. He certainly was the figurehead and the greatest musician then, and he probably still remains so now, which is phenomenal, 45 mm. years later, nobody has caught up with that guy yet. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> and so just to jump, you know, jump ahead a little bit, just to keep all this in context, after leaving high school in New Zealand, after I went through a bunch of bad stuff, I became a professional musician. And about, you know, what, 20, 15 years later, who do I meet and start playing with? <laughs> but Jimmy Hendrix's bass player, Noel Redding. Mm. I, his band leader, manager, and um, yeah, producer for his North American tours in the late 90s. So I always thought that that was very interesting. And exciting. Oh, totally. It's like <laughs> the reason I wanted to be a musician was because of Jimi Hendrix and how much I loved him. And then next thing you know, I'm a professional musician. I'm playing with Jimmy's bass player. <laughs> Sounds to me like you had a goal that you achieved. <laughs> oh, you yeah. said it before you and you went after it. Yeah, and it all happened like very serendipitously. That's probably the right word. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but one, go ahead. Uh, just getting back to my father's bizarre behavior, like this is a very, very interesting story. And I told this to my some friends of mine in New Zealand who now live in Christchurch, and they didn't believe this. They just thought I was making this up. So we, we've moved to Christchurch. My parents bought a house, and that's great. My father, when he was in Vietnam, when he came back from Vietnam, he managed to get right through customs, as most military people did coming back from Vietnam. He had a duffel bag filled with war souvenirs that he picked off the battlefield, including multiple assault rifles, pistols, you know, all sorts of things, ammunition belts, Vietnam, Viet Cong battle flags, all, you know, the usual war souvenirs and stuff. So he had managed to smuggle all this stuff into New Zealand all these assault rifles and, you know, boxes of ammunition. He must have had eight or ten pistols and and another half a dozen rifles and, you know, all the accruements of uh, a valid, you know, solid military career. So they just bought this house, and he has this great idea. One of his goals was to have 
an underground shooting gallery in his house so he could squeeze off a few rounds before breakfast, I suppose. Wow, yeah. What a goal. Yeah, what a goal. (laughs) So anyway, me and my brother were still living at at his house because we were still going to high school. He recruited us or ordered us to dig where we were going to be putting a couple of additions onto the house. And while we were putting on the additions of these two bedrooms to this house, he had us dig like a 50-yard um, tunnel underneath this bedroom, which we then secured and made into an underground shooting gallery, which was reached under the bedroom, a trap door in one of the bedrooms. You could go down this stairwell and into this underground shooting gallery, which was then wow. hit, hidden by this rug and this trap door. And so that was his goal, and we helped him fulfill that. And I actually have some home movie footage <laughs> of me and my brother helping to dig this damn trench under this, you know, addition to the house that he just bought. So how about that for a good story? And how did your mom respond to that? Not at all well. She, she was, you know, she was a serious alcoholic and based on... Yeah, it was all based on the brutality. My father was a very brutal guy. He brutalized everyone in our family, except for my sister. And again, she sort of escaped his wrath because she had moved out of the house already. And plus, she, being a woman or a girl, she was not expected to join the Marine Corps or the Navy and become a career officer like him. So my brother... And my mother bore the brunt of his PTSD and his violent, psychotic behavior. Hmm. They, and I, all of this is based on the brutality and the violence that he witnessed in Vietnam. I'm sure of it. You know, he just didn't turn into some psycho for no reason at all. Now, at one point I read that your lyrics are poignant, political, and literate that your commentary covers the atrocities of war, gun control, animal rights, and women's rights. So this is as a result of your childhood, I am assuming. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, getting back to the lyrics, I've again, I've been a professional musician for like 35 years, and I've been in band since I was like 20 or whatever it was. And I was always able to write music and contribute to the bands. I was in the music, but I was always like, held back by singing and by lyric writing. The main reason that I thought of why that was, because a lot of these bands that I was in, they always had very, very good singers. And generally the singers are the ones that write the lyrics. It's very Mm -hmm. difficult (laughs) to have like the drummer or the bass player or somebody in the band give the singer the lyrics and say, hey, sing these. Because lyrics, if they're any good, are very personal. The good ones are anyway. Nobody wants to sing somebody. Good point. Yeah, nobody wants to sing anybody's awful lyrics. You know, those. Mm-hmm. You know, the when you ever go and see performers or bands, they can be they can have the best band in the world and the greatest musicians, but if they have bad lyrics, then that just sticks out and it's just cringe material. <laughs> if you ask me, bad lyrics can just like kill it completely. So, but. So not only was I felt restricted to not sing or write lyrics because these bands I was in always had good lyric writers and good singers to begin with, for whatever reason, I think it was because, or 
it wasn't until both of my parents died, my mother died in 2004, my father died in 2008, that I sort of felt free to finally mm -hmm. be able to express myself without anybody judging me. Because That makes sense, of course. Yeah, and so that was like a weight lifted off my shoulders, even though it was a, a tragedy having my parents die like that. It, it was like a weight lifted off my shoulders. Nobody was looking over my shoulder and judging me. The other thing I want to add, my father was a very severe jazz fan, and he hated rock and roll. He hated <laughs> folk music. He hated anything, unless it was like 50s jazz, you know, bebop or uh -huh. <laughs> 40s swing any Goodman stuff and anything else wasn't real music it was amateur hour so he prevented me from becoming a musician he you know he refused to get me a guitar or any encourage me in my pursuit of music at all during my teenage years this is another good story so the first guitar I actually started off as a bass player instead of a guitar player I learned the bass first the first instrument that I bought I bought it secretly because <laughs> when I was about 16, I knew my parents had refused to allow me to become a musician and to follow my passion and to do, you know, to get into music. So I ended up buying a, my first bass guitar and I had to keep it hidden at my friend's house. And then I'd sneak out of the house at night wow. and go to my house and, and practice the bass and try to get proficient on the bass guitar. That's how unencouraged I was or discouraged I was by my parents to follow music. I was to, you know, join the military, follow my father's footsteps, be a military, you know, officer either in the Marine Corps or the Navy. That's, you know, so that's... So how did he respond when you did not join the military? This is leading up to the great tragedy. That yes, yes. This is how it all went down. And it's, it's very... All this is very personal, and you you did read my short story or yes. treatment on this. So, okay, well, this is pretty much how it, how, it, how it went down. We had just graduated high school in Christchurch, let's see, and we were 18 years old. We, of course, had stopped listening to my father's rants, and we'd grown our hair long, and I was adamant that I was going to become a musician, and we weren't doing what we were told, you know, usual Mm -hmm. Rebellion. Usual teenager stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing. You know, nothing bad. You know. So, my father came up with this brilliant idea. Okay, we've been living in Christchurch, New Zealand, for like five years. We hadn't. None of us had been back to California. So, my father came up with this wonderful idea. He was going to invite my mother and me and my brother back to New. Back to. California for a Christmas vacation. So we thought, hey, this sounds like a good idea. So we get on the plane and we go over there and we go to Lake Tahoe, which is a wonderful place, as you know, beautiful place to be around Christmas time. We're there for about a week staying in a hotel. And then my father leaves unexpectedly. He says he has some business to do in Southern California. So he flies to Southern California arranging something or other and my mother is there with me and my brother in this motel and then one one morning she gets up and she makes this big announcement and she says uh your father doesn't like the way you two are turning out and you're out of control and me and or my mother and my father are going to return to new zealand and we're going to leave you two here and this is going to force you out on the street 
and then you're going to join the Marine Corps and oh. turn your lives around. Oh, dear. And be just like your father. <laughs> Sorry for chuckling, yeah. but oh, I can't imagine. So here we are. It's Christmas Eve. There's four feet of snow out on the ground in Lake Tahoe. My mother checks out of the hotel. She gets in the taxi. She goes to the airport, and she leaves her two 18-year-old twin sons on the street, no money, nowhere to go, not knowing a soul. Christmas wow. Eve. And what's very – I only realized this later, but my father, being the big, tough Marine, he let, left the dirty work for his wife. No he kidding. No kidding. He didn't, have, he didn't have the balls to yep. do it himself. He left. He ordered his wife to do his dirty work for him. How about that for a big tough marine? And is that the emotion that you were feeling at the time, or is that what you realized later? No, I realized that particular statement later. But what you know, I was just, I was incredulous. I was just going, "What is this? It's like you must be kidding. This, this, this has got to be illegal, you know." And you know what? If we were 17, it would have been illegal. It would have been child endangerment. But I'm sure my father had this whole thing planned. 18 years old, you're no longer a minor. You're on your own. Goodbye and good luck. And so that was the big plan to force us on the street as street people so we would then join the Marine Corps and be just like him. So where did you go from there? Okay. Um, so three feet of snow, Christmas Eve in Lake Tahoe. That doesn't sound like too much fun. We'd always loved San Francisco when we were kids, and we knew it was there wasn't three feet of snow there. So my brother and I decided, okay, we're gonna we gotta get out of here. We'll go to San Francisco. We'll see what happens. Maybe we can go to the New Zealand embassy, and maybe we can, you know, have them get us back to New Zealand. Because all we really wanted to do at that point was go back to New Zealand, where we had friends who had apartments, we could live, we could do whatever we wanted to do, maybe we'd go to school, get a job, we wouldn't be going through this, that's for sure. But, so, we just let me back up a little bit here. The last year that we had been in New Zealand in high school, my brother had already slowly started to show signs of mental uh, instability. Oh, Actually, it was a couple of years before that. He had already started. He became very violent. He he ended up getting expelled from school and also joined the New Zealand or the Christchurch New Zealand chapter of the Hells Angels and was arrested for a series of, you know, burglaries and break-ins <laughs> and car thefts and some pretty bad behavior. But I... I'm probably telling you too much, but this, you know this is a program about inspiration. Absolutely. And so there's not, you know, I feel like I should just be telling the whole truth here. Absolutely. And so what to me what really triggered my twin brother's mental breakdown was not only the attempted filicide, which is the parents trying to kill their their children, which is what my parents did to us. That was one part of it. But my older sister had given me and my twin brother handfuls of LSD when we were 15 years old. Because? And because she thought that was a cool thing to do and to, okay. turn, to turn her brothers on and see what would happen, blah, blah, blah. And with all things considered, I actually kept that a secret from my parents. If I had actually told my father that, I'm sure that he would have probably taken his 45 out and blown her head off. Wow. He, I don't think he would have responded very well at all to that. But to get back to my point, my brother's mental instability sort 
started pretty much right away after the handfuls of LSD that were given to us by my sister. So mm-hmm. he had started slowly going over the edge and just a- acting very erratically. He ended up being expelled from the school we were at, which is Burnside High School, and he ended up going to another school down the street called Papanui. So he finished. He was, by the way, a very, very intelligent person. He had a genius IQ. Everybody thought he was going to be a doctor or a scientist or something. He was top of the class. His teachers at school would call my parents and just tell them that they thought he was the most intelligent child that they'd ever taught. Really? That's how much promise he had and how it, you know what was going to happen to him so we're getting back to lake tahoe on christmas eve in three feet of snow so we hitchhiked to san francisco and we're living on the street we're living in golden gate park we go to the new zealand embassy it's like what sorry you're not new zealand citizens you're american citizens with new zealand permanent residency can't help you we then go okay in new zealand if you're unemployed and you don't have a job go to the welfare office and you get unemployment. And that's great. And a lot of people do that. People that don't want to work and they get, you know, a living wage and they hang around and they don't work and they sort of live comfortably. They can pay their rent, do whatever they want to do, hang around, whatever. So we go to the unemployment office. Of course, in America, it's different. It's like you haven't worked. You don't get unemployment. You have to, you know, contribute to that unemployment fund. That's right. And that's how that works. So I'm going, okay, New Zealand Embassy isn't going to help. We can't get unemployment. What are we going to do? So we ended up, you know, we were true uh, street people. We were eating in St. Anthony's dining room with the winos and the bums and the pimps and the hookers and the drug addicts. And we were, luckily, we had sleeping bags. We brought sleeping bags with us. So at least we had sleeping bags. And we were sleeping in Golden Gate Park. And daily, I would see the deterioration of my twin brother's mental state, just daily. Really? It was just going really quick. And within a week of this, he was completely gone. He was, I don't know if you or any of your listeners know, I'm sure they do because it's quite common, know anyone with severe schizophrenia. And it's completely delusional. The whole, you know, the whole gamut of, you know, the lady on the on the news is telling me secret messages right right and president you know president carter is wanting me to join the cia so i can you know promote world peace and all of the you know all of the stuff that you hear and it was very 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 hard and i was 18 years old we were both 18 years old at the time i couldn't what i remember thinking at the time was i couldn't think of a worse situation to be in And I just thought at the back of my mind, no matter what I go through for the rest of my life, if I can get over this, then I'm going to be okay because nothing is going to be as bad as this. Keep pounding the pavements, hitting the streets. I eventually found word that they'd open a new program for, it's called general assistance. And for like, for a two week period, um, the city of San Francisco would provide you a, like a skid row hotel and uh, food stamps. So I like, this is great. This is exactly what we need. So I went down there with my twin brother. I had to do all the talking for him because he was in no state to do anything. I was looking after him. And by some miracle, we made the short list because of our age and of our dire situation of not having any relatives, not Mm -hmm. knowing anybody, not having a cent, blah, blah, blah. 
So we managed to get these hotel vouchers. I think we ended up getting them for about a month at a Skid Row hotel uh, south of Market in San Francisco and food stamps. So we had a room or a roof over our head and a room to sleep in and food. So I tried my best to look after my brother. I'd leave him in the room during the day. This is after us living on the streets and sleeping in Golden Gate Park for about a month. And anybody who's ever been homeless will know only takes a couple of days of doing that and your whole world is turned upside down. There's a very, very different perspective mm. when you're sleeping in an alleyway or in a doorway and it's raining and you're cold and you're hungry and you have nowhere to go. You ought to try it sometime. Anybody out there who thinks that the majority of homeless people are just, you know, lazy or stupid, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whatever it is, the majority of them, unfortunately, are mentally unstable. They almost, Most of them now, either before or because of their homelessness, have substance abuse or alcohol issues, but the majority of them are in that situation because of mental illness. Could I just interrupt for one second here and ask you, did you try to contact your parents at any time yes. during this time? Yeah. And what happened there? Okay. Um, after living on the streets for about a month and then living in these hotels, in this, in this flea bag hotel, I just thought, actually, it could have been a few months had gone by. That's a, a couple of months on the street and maybe a couple of months in these flea bag hotels. Before I get to the part about my parents, I would leave my brother in the room every day and I'd go out and just try to find a job, anything, working at Safeway, you know, bagging groceries, anything, just get a job, get more money, look after my brother. So his, his, his mental condition had deteriorated so badly and I, I had no idea what to do. I was 18 years old. I thought I've got to try to phone my parents and tell them the results of this little plan of theirs, and maybe that mm. would prompt them to go, oops, maybe we really did screw up here. Keith and Kevin are on the verge of dying here. Kevin has had a mental breakdown. What's going to happen to them, etc. So I go to a pay phone box. <laughs> Remember those? In the yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't see too many of them around. Uh, anyway, go to a pay phone box and I made a collect phone call to Christchurch, New Zealand to my parents' phone number and somebody answers the phone and it's some woman and I go, uh, is Mr. and Mrs. Dion there? Because I didn't recognize the voice. Mm -hmm. And she goes, oh no, they've just sold their house to me and my husband and they've moved back to the United States. Oh my oh, God. And, and no, we they've left no forwarding address and we have nowhere no way of knowing where they've gone or how to get hold of them sorry i can't help you and no i'm not accepting a collect call from you goodbye click <laughs> so that wow. was it so that was it my one hope and i had been holding out trying to contact them because again i had this deep burning feeling inside me that I was going to show my father <laughs> that he was wrong and that I was going to succeed at what I wanted to do. And this abomination that he you know, fostered or on me and my brother wasn't going to work. We weren't going to join the Marine Corps and that he was going to be really sorry for what he'd done to us at some point. And so I had this ambition, again, to succeed at all costs and not let this kill me. And at that point, I didn't know what to do. At the, my brother had deteriorated so bad 
I did had no way of getting hold of my parents. It was, you know, it was over. It, it was me looking after my brother, and that was it. And I had to do everything. So continuing on in this vein, I ended up getting a job, a low-level job, if you can believe it. It was a clerical job for the Bank of California. And I think they've been absorbed first by First Interstate, and then now they're part of Wells Fargo or something. So I ended up getting quite a, for an uneducated, you know, I had a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I ended up getting quite a good job with the Bank of California, and it was pretty good money. I was able to move out of the Fleabag Motel and get my own room and an apartment. And I continued to look after my brother. The one very strange thing that my brother started to do before he disappeared was that he would come over to visit me, and he would ask to borrow my clothes, you know, jackets or shirts mm -hmm. or what, what have you. And I also had bought a cheap guitar at that point. So I had a cheap guitar that I was trying to teach myself to play on. And he would come over and ask to borrow clothes. And of course, I'd do anything to help him. I'd let him borrow my clothes. And then one day he said he wanted to borrow my guitar. And then I thought this was very strange. So I followed him without him knowing me, and what he ended up was what, what he was doing was he was his personality had disintegrated through his schizophrenic state to the point where he had no personality and he was acting out me. Oh. And I'll never forget that. Watching him go where I would go, act like I would act, wearing my clothes, pretending to play the guitar, and he was playing my part. And that is something that also has really stayed with me for a long, long time, and it probably will never leave me. Of course. Of course. So we've come to that point, and he's done that a couple of times. And so he came over the last time I saw him. He came over again to my hotel room. I was in a flea bag hotel down the road from him. My hotel was called the Shasta Hotel, and it's on uh, Kearney at Pine Street. And Kevin was living at what was known as the Greystone Hotel, which is on Geary, uh, just around the corner from Kearney. So we were about two blocks away. So he came over to my house one day, or my room, asked to borrow the clothes, asked to borrow the guitar. I said, sure, no problem. Do you know? I've done this. He's done this several times. So he did that. And I said, I'll, I'll see you later on, or I'll come by and see you tomorrow and see how you're doing. So he said, fine. So the next day, I went to his room at the Greystone Hotel, and I went up the up the elevator to his floor where his little room was and the door was open and him and all of his stuff was gone. Mm -hmm. And then I asked the people at the front desk, they were Indian, an Indian couple that owned this place. Quite interesting too, the way that they manage that place. <laughs> that's a whole, that's a whole, that's a whole other book. <laughs> that's a whole other book. Trust me. Like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in, in my life was the wife of the owner of this flea bag hotel. Wow. <laughs> and I heard, I heard, I'm just going to tell you this little story. And I heard the husband, the guy that had owned or managed this hotel, he had purchased this beautiful wife, I think for two cows and a couple of chickens. And it, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, Hey, you for her, that's a real good deal. <laughs> But anyway, I just thought I'd digress with that. That's <laughs> I, never, I never forgot. But um, getting back to going to my brother's room, the front door is wide open. Him and all of his stuff is gone, and that's it. I think, where is he gone? Nobody knows. Nobody knows at all. He's disappeared off the face of the planet. 
I didn't know what to do. I went to all the places that we would usually go, which would be, you know, Union Square, various cafes or places that took food stamps that we could buy food, etc., etc. I went to Golden Gate Park. I went to the Hate. I went all over the city for three days, and I never saw him again for many, many years. And it remained a complete mystery. I actually thought that he may have committed suicide. All right, so just to give you a little bit more background information on how Kevin was eventually found, one of the few bright spots that I had during this incredibly dark period of being a homeless person, etc., etc. I had met a very beautiful woman who was a dancer, and her name was Margaret. I won't say her last name because I want to protect her privacy. And her husband, her husband was a ended up becoming a pretty famous actor, not a leading man as such, but a very successful Hollywood actor in film and plays and stuff. So while I was staying at one of these flea bag motels, I had met this woman. She was much older than me. She was about eight years older than me. She had had a temporary um, uh, breakup with her husband or just a leave of absence from her husband. Her husband was in New York working on trying to get into Broadway plays and to break into films. She was a dancer. She came to San Francisco to take uh, part in a dance troupe. Um, I can't recall the name of it, but her and I hit it off immediately and we had a relationship. She also knew what was going on with my brother and she tried to help me manage my brother. <laughs> she could see him deteriorating. I, I remember the name now, it was Martha Graham, the Martha Graham dance troupe. She was part of that. She was going through, I think, a three or six month uh, uh, course with her where with them where she was studying modern dance with her. So she was this really beautiful woman. I think she was on either the cover of Cosmopolitan or Vogue. That's how beautiful mm -hmm. she was. And she was, she was like eight years older than me. And at the time I just kept thinking, what is this beautiful older woman seeing me? <laughs> but then of course, later on, I realized what, <laughs> what that was all about. But, um, Anyway, she saw what had been going on with my brother, and before he disappeared, after I'd been with her for several months, she reconciled with her husband, and she decided to leave the Martha Graham dance troupe and go back to her husband in New York. Fair enough. She's married to this guy. They have a daughter together. Fair enough. I'm 18 years old. Whatever. So it was a really, she was a very, very good friend. She was with me through probably the darkest, worst time of my whole life, right? So she moves back to New York, and I didn't hear from her. It's like, fine, she has her life, she has her husband, whatever. So my, just to jump ahead, a few weeks later, my brother disappears. He completely disappears off the face of the earth. I have no idea where he's gone, what he's done. Has he committed suicide? Has he been murdered? Has he been arrested? I don't know. 
I'm 18 years old. I don't have the wherewithal to know mm-hmm. how to mm-hmm. attract anybody or go to social services or, you know, approach missing persons. I don't know about any of that stuff. I'm 18 years old. So I don't, I don't know what else to do at this point. I've landed myself a job at the Bank of California, and I am hell-bent on saving enough money so I can go back to New Zealand. I can get my life together. I can try to make sense of all of the stuff that I've gone through. I didn't really, again, I thought my brother was dead. I had nowhere, no idea where he was, what to do. So about six months later, now four months later, I finally saved enough money through my job and I'm going to move back to New Zealand. I'm, I'm hell bent on becoming a musician, on reconnecting with my friends, <clears throat> trying to get over this really bad stuff that I really still, I couldn't comprehend really the severity of the things that I'd been through. And in fact, it was only till many years later that I realized what me and my brother had been through was in fact a big PTSD episode. This is a complete PTSD episode that we've been through. So just by chance, a week before I'm to go back to New Zealand, I visited some friends at the at the Greystone Hotel, and that is where Margaret had had a room, and where my brother had had a room, and where I still had a couple of friends that I used to go and visit. One of them, her name was Beth, and she had, ironically enough, a Vietnam War PTSD damaged boyfriend named David. Hmm. I won't mention his last name, but apparently he won the Congressional Medal of Honor in Vietnam. So he was a highly decorated war veteran, but he was really screwed. He was completely screwed up too. But just to cut right to it, a few days before I'm to go back to New Zealand, I visited Beth at the Greystone Hotel and she says, Keith, I have a letter from you, from Margaret. And I'm going, wow, that's nice to hear from her. And she says, she's in New York. So I opened this letter and it's a letter from Margaret, and she says, Keith, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm just going to tell you. I'm here with my husband in New York. He's working his way up the ladder off Broadway, and we were at a cafe in Greenwich Village, and I recognized a figure walking up the street. It was a very skinny, dirty draggled figure, long hair, beard, only wearing a pair of jeans, no shoes, no socks, no shirt. It's in September. It was my brother. Oh, my goodness. My twin brother in his schizophrenic state had hitchhiked across the entire United States. <laughs> and, oh. and he was living on the streets of New York, at, in the schizophrenic state, wearing only a pair of jeans, 18 years old. And I was later to hear that he also, you hear about homeless people in New York living in, under, the, under the subways. Mm-hmm. The, that's where he was living. He was living in the sewers. He was living under the subways in New York, in the schizophrenic state. So Margaret had told me, that she did, she sat him down, she bought him a meal, she gave him twenty dollars, 
and he was, you know, he was completely gone when I had last seen him, but she couldn't believe the state and she couldn't believe what he was doing in New York. He had hitchhiked from San Francisco to New York in that state. My goodness. So that is the last piece of information that I had on my brother. And it was like three days before I was to return to New Zealand. I was 18 years old. What was I going to do? I was going to fly to New York. And then what? I was going to stay in a hotel and look for my brother in Manhattan. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What was I going to do? What was I going to do? What a I, dilemma. Yeah. What was I going to do? So I had my ticket. And I knew my brother was in New York. I thought, my God, what's he going to do in New York? How long is he going to live there? You know, there's 10 feet of snow there in the winter. So I went back to New Zealand and I then spent about the next two years practicing the guitar, learning to be a musician. And I did not hear from my parents or, you know, obviously they didn't know where I was. Right. Or my sis. I later found out that my sister, my sister, had um, she had married an English guy in New Zealand named Brian, and they had moved right after me and my brother and parents had gone to America, and my parents had pulled their filicide attempt on me and my brother. About six months later. When my parents had moved to Reno, Nevada, my sister and her husband, Brian, they thought, ah, oh, we're sick of New Zealand. Maybe we should move to Reno, Nevada, too, because my sister wanted to get her master's degree. And so they moved to Reno, Nevada as well. But her marriage had broken down and her husband, they'd gotten divorced and her husband had then gone back to New Zealand because he didn't like America at all. He was English. He'd grown up in New Zealand. He just didn't like it. So he went back to New Zealand about two years after I had gone back to New Zealand, no, maybe three years. I was hitchhiking one day around the North Island and there's a big lake in the middle of North Island of New Zealand called Lake Taupo. And it's very similar to Lake Tahoe, ironically enough. So I'm right outside Lake, Lake Taupo I'm hitchhiking. Suddenly this green van pulls up and who's driving this van but my brother-in-law. <laughs> Brian, his, Brian, my brother-in-law. And he was like, Keith. And I'm going, Brian. And there's, he's going, my God. <laughs> what happened? Everybody thinks you and Kevin are dead. And then he tells me, tells me the whole story about him and my sister following my parents, living in Reno, hating it, them divorcing, him coming back there. And he did say that my sister and my mother and my father had no idea where we were. They thought we were dead, the whole thing. And that still my my parents had felt no guilt whatsoever. That's amazing. No oh, guilt. Oh, wow. No guilt. It's like, yeah, you know. Did you hate them at this point? Um, uh, like, like, what was your emotion? My emotion to them, again, I had not so much an ambition, but I had a motive to prove that they were wrong 
and that I was going to succeed at all costs. And to quote your your line, I was never going to give up. Right. If it okay. killed me, I was never going to give up. It was beyond, you know, it was sort of beyond hate at that point. It was like, what, you want to disown your children, try to kill them? It's like, how do you want me to respond to that? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I, how, do, how does one respond to that? So it was really beyond all that. So I told Brian the whole story, and I also told him about hearing from Margaret and that Kevin was last seen in New York as a homeless person wandering the streets in nothing but a pair of jeans. And so he had my sister, my sister's uh, mailing address, which he gave to me. But what he did, I'm not sure if he called her on the phone from where he was living in Taupo, New Zealand, or whether he wrote her a letter. But soon enough, he had let my sister, who then let my mother and father know what had happened to me and my brother and and where my brother was. And what had happened to him. And I also described to Brian his full mental breakdown, the schizophrenic uh, episode and the whole thing. So I think I had given Brian my mailing address because I was living in Auckland, New Zealand at the time. And I soon received a letter from my sister, very incredulous, saying she couldn't believe what had happened, blah, blah, blah. And can you still hear me? Yes. All right, good, yeah. I just thought I disconnected the, uh, the thing. Let me start again. So hearing from my sister, she was very incredulous as to what had happened and what we had gone through. She had shared this information with my mother. My mother at this point is feeling incredibly guilty. Oh, really? At this point, hearing that my brother has had a mental breakdown and he's a street person in New York. <laughs> She, against my father's wishes, took the family credit card and booked a airline tickets for my sister and my mother to go to New York to try to find my brother. And really? So, because she had a sister who lived in Queens, so she, they had a place to live mm-hmm. to stay. So they went to Queens, and then they hit the Missing Persons Bureau and the New York police department, et cetera, et cetera, to try to locate my brother. They ended up finding him in Rikers Island in the criminal insane ward in Rikers Island. Apparently, he had lived on the street in New York under the subways in the sewers for like three years. Oh, my goodness. And he was just a complete, you know, he was a yeah. Yeah. Wreck the last time I saw him. And you can imagine what three years living on the street in New York would do to you. Mm-hmm. So apparently, at one point, he'd been run over by a taxi cab in Manhattan. And he was completely incoherent, had amnesia, was a schizophrenic, had no identification papers on him. What are, they, what are the cops going to do? Yeah. They put him in Rikers Island. Where else are they going to put him? So they put him in this ward with amnesia, didn't know who he was. They ended up identifying him from a military dependence ID card that my mother had. So through a fingerprint check, they ended up finding him in Rikers Island. My mother and sister got him out, and they went back to Reno. Upon 
hearing that my mother and sister had found my brother, my father wanted to just leave him there. He just said, just leave him there. Really? He's dead. He's dead. He's no good. He's a wreck. Forget it. Leave him there. So, so my brother gets taken back to Reno, Nevada to live with my sister because my parents wouldn't let him live there with him. It was obviously, I think the guilt was really kicking in with my mother. My father never showed any guilt or any interest whatsoever in, or responsibility in what he had done. So my sister was instrumental, and I'm not sure if that was guilt on her part because of the part that she had played with the LSD hands right, right. when we were 15. I still think that's 50% of the responsibility right there. You don't give 15-year-old children handfuls of LSD. I think if Carol, if you or I did that right now, if we gave the 15-year-old next-door neighbor handfuls of LSD, I think we'd get about five years in jail. Exactly. <laughs> That's called um, leading to the, uh, what, what is that? Delinquency of a minor? Uh, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yes, that's right. That's legal and, and, and beyond that, <laughs> more than delinquency. Yeah, it's like it's a very dangerous drug. You don't mm. hand that out to anybody. Remember in the 60s, people would spike people's drinks with that? Oh, I know. Believe that? God. Then people jump off buildings or get in car wrecks. It's just it's diabolical, that sort of behavior. So, but getting back on point, my sister was really instrumental in getting my brother lifelong social security benefits because let's face it, he was completely disabled. Mm-hmm. He was schizophrenic, a lifelong schizophrenic. Schizophrenia, as you know, or as I'm not sure if many of your listeners know this. Once you get it, you don't get cured, you don't have therapy, take a few pills, and then you're okay. It is a debilitating mental condition, and you don't get over it. You don't go to school, you don't have a career, you don't work. You you get managed on these psychotropic drugs that keep you manageable. And that's, you know, that's your life when you're a severe schizophrenic. It's not like depression or something that you can manage just with therapy or some mild, you know, mood elevators or something. So when, she, how did they? How, how did she live with him? Did, could she trust him? I mean, was he um, secured or or how did how did that work? A, a few times, and she gave it her best shot. I got to hand it to her, where she would have her own apartment and Kevin would be the, her roommate. But of course. He would always blow it. He would always start a fire or mm-hmm. leave the front door open or throw away all of her possessions or break something or get arrested. Mm-hmm. Or he would always blow it, you know, and it's not his fault. He's a debilitating schizophrenic, right. you know, that's how they are. So, so he ended up being... A couple of times he had to be under managed care, which means you're not allowed to come and go as you want. As his condition deteriorated or or uh, improved, he also was able to go through various board and care homes where he did have freedom of movement. But the key thing was, was that he did have his full Social Security uh, benefits, so he was 
being looked after by the, by that. And after a while, he didn't like Reno, so he ended up moving to Fresno, California, and that's where he's living right now. And he's lived there for about the last 30 years in a series of board and care homes. Do you ever see him? Yes. Not so much in the last couple of years. He has his up periods and his down periods, but we, he's a prolific letter writer. And Carol, I wanted to run this by you. I think you're going to find this fascinating. The short story or treatment that I wrote on, on this, the original title was Our Own Lives to Live. And I'll get back to how that title came about at some point. Now it's called Snapshots of Heaven and Hell. Right. Another book that I'm thinking of writing, my brother was a prolific letter writer, and I've kept every letter that he's ever written to me. Oh, my goodness. How amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like 30 years worth of letters. And, of course, the title of this would be Letters from Kevin. And maybe it could be an adjunct to my book. Mm-hmm. Maybe they could be like, a, you know, how that'd be very, very ironic, have a twin edition because we're twins. I could write the first part and he could write the second part, which would be his letters from Kevin. So does he know who he is and who you are? And has he got that back? Yeah, yeah, he did. He did get that back. Funny how it is getting out of Rikers Island mental ward and being off the street of New York living under the, under the sewers he, he he's kept on his medication and he is a lot more stable over the years and he stayed out of trouble and he has his life and he still has his genius IQ he's like one of these people and you get this with uh, schizophrenic people or people who are autistic where I think he's pretty much memorized the Bible and he's a major uh, theologian where he studies the most intense religious textbooks and philosophy books. He's he's a true genius with a my goodness with a you know what do they call that uh, the, the memory the uh, photographic memory yes yes yeah, a photographic memory and he's just a genius and if it wasn't for this breakdown he could have had a real impact. In one way or the other, I'm sure. That's incredible that you were able to con- reconnect with him, though, after all those years, and then to have that kind of uh, relationship. Yeah, that's yeah. just. We share. Yeah, we shared. Something. And as a twin, because you know the connection as a twin in particular. Yeah. I mean, you must have felt like part of you died. Oh yeah, it was. You had lost, you know, lost touch with him. No, oh, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So let's fast forward a bit. Okay. And talk about now you have definitely arrived partially according to you because uh-huh. you want you want to have, be an overnight success you told me, right? <laughs> After 30 <laughs> years in the business you want to become an overnight success. No, but I I've, think you have accomplished a great deal. Oh yeah, thank you. So let's talk about those accomplishments. What are you the most proud of? Okay, being a musician and a record producer and songwriter what I'm most proud of is actually meeting and working with Noel Redding, who was the bass player in the Jimi Hendrix Experience. And again, I wanted to be a musician when I was a kid because I loved Jimi Hendrix so much. He was such an inspirational figure. And I almost felt, 
I had been a professional musician. I started in New Zealand after my attempts at learning the guitar. I, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was good enough to be in bands, you know. <laughs> but, so I was in bands in New Zealand for about four or five years doing endless New Zealand tours. And that's doing that for four or five years. It's, you know, you could 30, 30 years could go by and you could still be doing that. It's like, you could just like <laughs> being the best band in Wyoming or something. It's like, you know, big fish in a little pond syndrome. Now, you know, New Zealand has a very vibrant and wonderful and unique music scene, but it really was such an isolated remote part of the world that I thought if I was ever going to get, do any type of breakthrough, it was going to have to be, either in America or England or somewhere. So <laughs> that's when I moved back to New Zealand, uh, to San Francisco from New Zealand in 1985. And that had been 10 years since I'd last seen my parents. So I went 10 years without seeing anybody in my family. Right. But I had become a professional. I had hit my goals and I'd become a professional musician in New Zealand. And then I was here in San Francisco and doing the same thing. But just to answer your question, from 1985, I, did, I met Noel Redding at the end of 1995. So I continued to be a professional musician in San Francisco from 1985 to like 1995 before I met Noel Redding. But meeting Noel, that was like, that was really cool. Because no kidding. It was, you know, that was there's so much synchronicity there and, you know, synergy there. To, you know, to meet him, it was like for one of the reasons why I wanted to be a musician. And what the cool thing with that was that he didn't see me play in a bar and go, "Wow, that's the guy <laughs> I want playing with." Me. It's like he's the new, you know, it's not, it wasn't anything like that. I met him socially and he disliked me and trusted me and we became friends. And then he found out I was a musician because I was helping him, advising him on some business things to do with his career. Because probably a lot of listeners and maybe even yourself don't even know that even though Jimi Hendrix experienced was one of the biggest bands of all time, I think they've been voted like the fifth best act ever by the Rolling, you know, Rolling Stones top right. 100 artists of all times. But after Jimi Hendrix died, the lawyers and the accountants and the record companies all screwed over Noel Redding and their drummer, Mitch Mitchell, for like 25 million bucks each in record royalties. Oh. And so Noel had a lot of business issues. And I, being I'm also a, a music historian as well as a musician and record producer. So I knew all about their story and about who all the bad guys were and how the, you know, the whole chronology about how they got really screwed over. It's probably the worst ripoff in rock and roll history. Those guys getting ripped off and we could do, we could dedicate a whole. Story. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yes. But, um, just to answer your question, oh, it's a long-winded answer. So, yeah, meeting Noel Redding, and then first as a friend, and then he found out I was a musician, and then we started working together, and then I became his American manager because he had one band in England and Europe that he'd used, and then he'd used my band in San Francisco for his Amer American tours and recordings, and he trusted me with everything. He trusted me with his contracts, with his money, with his press, everything, and... 
I almost felt I was like his little brother. I, actually, I'm sort of similar looking to him because I've got curly hair and glasses. <laughs> and I've got so many good stories about when I was working with him. When we'd tour, he'd refuse to do sound checks or move the equipment. And of course he wouldn't because, you know, he was the star and we were the band. So I would show up as the leader of the band and the band manager to do the sound checks and set up the equipment. And so many times when I was there doing that, when Noel would be back at the hotel, people would come up and with tears in their eyes, want to shake my hand and ask for my autograph because they thought that I was not <laughs> Oh, I bet you loved it. I did. And when I told Noel that, he loved it. He said, start signing them. So I actually signed <laughs> Autographs. Oh. So these are, you know, I got so many stories like this about working with Noel. I think I'm going to have to do another interview. This is, <laughs> <laughs> you could go on for a couple of days here. It's just uh, amazing. Uh, um, yeah, you don't know the half of it, Carol. I'm sure I don't, and I would love to hear it. What's in your future? Well, speaking of Noel Redding, Noel died in 2003. And I got to know the people, or his heirs, and I'm working with them, some lovely sisters, Nancy and Lexus, and we're working on some very exciting projects that are Noel Redding orientated, one of which could be a really amazing film. I was actually working on it on my own because at first I was working on it on my own. All the tours... I did three or four tours with Noel, and I professionally recorded all the gigs and as well as had them filmed. I also filmed a bunch of interviews that he gave at various radio stations, etc., and my own tour diaries and all the documentation that I have. I had enough to put together a biographical film on just on my working with him, and it was going to be called West Cork Tuning. So West Cork is where Noel retired to and lived in Ireland, a place called Clonakilty. So we were working on that, and I was working on that, and I was invited to Clonakilty in 2014 because I'd made a film trailer about West Cork tuning, and they were having a Noel Redding tribute uh, weekend concert at Debaris Pub in Clonakilty where Noel held the residency for 20 years. So they invited me over. And I gave this presentation and shown this film trailer in like Noel's town in front of all of his friends and neighbors and all of his musician friends and everybody was crying and it was just so special and so amazing. I was put in touch with the head of the Irish film board and even the Irish cultural minister and they were alerted to the fact that I was going to be, you know, working on making this film and they both like green lighted this project and said that they were willing to you know, be involved in this project, which was going to promote Ireland as well as Noel Redding. And the next thing you know, I'm contacted by Noel's heirs, and now we're working together on not just, it's not specifically going to be West Cork tuning, because that was more just a film about mm -hmm. working with Noel, but it's going to be, we have, I can't share too much right now because we're still in negotiation with a lot of really amazing stuff. Mm. But we're talking about, we have so much content for so many different Noel Redding projects, it's mind-boggling. We're talking about you know, films and books and recordings. I have hours and hours of unreleased Noel Redding recordings, some of which I produce, some of which 
have nothing to do with me, but are held within his estate's archives, films, books. He kept day-to-day diaries of his entire life, 44 years. Unbelievable. It is. I think by, because I've had access to all of the archives, all of his photo collections, all of his diaries, all of his films, all of his recordings. He kept every press clipping on the Jimi Hendrix experience. We have original copies of everything from his entire career, all of his day-to-day diaries. I can honestly say that I think Noel would be the most chronicled and archived celebrity ever, ever. (laughs) And you're part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm working with Noel's estate, and we're, yeah, we're working on some incredible projects. And, again, we're in negotiations with some really serious stuff right now, and I I just can't, I don't want to, Announce things too of early course, before the conference. How they, how well, we'll do we'll do this again, and we'll talk more about your career and his, yes. and um, you know what led up to whatever we're going you're going to expose at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this is the little four year old boy standing in a military uniform. Yep. And look which where you have gone, what you have gone through, where you have been, and now where you are going. This is a true rags-to-riches story. Well, thank you, Carol. You are an amazing man. I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to you, and and my head is spinning with all kinds of questions, but I didn't want to interrupt you. I'm blown away at many points, even as a mother, wondering how in the world, you know, anybody could do that to her children. Yeah. And the whole drug scene with, you know, your sister and I mean, everything, the way your life came together, the way things just seemed to happen at the precise moment they were supposed to happen. Yeah, there is. It was ordained, you know, this whole your your career and where it's going. Like we had talked before the interview started. This is just the beginning. Oh, absolutely. The things that I just touched on with these Noel Redding estate projects, the Great American Robber Barons, we've gotten a new record deal. We're recording a new album that's going to come out with the, the lead Noel Redding uh, project when that comes out. And also the Ponson BDCs, I went back to New Zealand a couple of years. We recorded a follow-up, and that's going to be called uh, You Don't Know the Half of It. So we got You Don't Know the Half of It. Great American Robert Barron's new album is called The End of Revolution Coming. And then there's going to be the huge Noel Redding project that's going to come out. Again, I can't share exactly what that is, but it's going to be a big story when that comes out. And the Robert Barron's and the Ponce BDCs are going to be released with it at the same time so that, you know, it's all come to this. And these are the biggest projects that I've ever have worked on. And they're all going to come out, you know, really soon. They're, going to come out this year so it's going to be a big year let me tell you <laughs> so we will be talking to you this time next year <laughs> yeah. if well, not before yeah or anytime you like absolutely keith you have been a pleasure a delight i mean i don't know what words to put on it um compelling riveting exciting and so focused thank you i, I really it. really appreciate you know that you had a determination, you had a tenacity, you never gave up your dream, and look what you've accomplished. I hope this is a phenomenal um, 
uh, interview and experience and inspiration, motivation, encouragement <laughs> to so many who are listening because we all want to grab onto that, you know, that goal that we have and and run with it. And you did that through the most dire of circumstances. Thanks, Carol. Like the only other thing I want to say is like it's so true in life just not to give up, but more specific to musicians. Like musicians give up. You know, if you're a musician or an artist and you aren't getting the success that you want or you need, I'll just give up. Well, if you give up, there's no guarantee that really anything is going to happen if you're a musician or an artist or a filmmaker. But if you give up, it's you're, it's guaranteed that nothing is going to happen. So legitimate point. And I think it can be, apply in many areas, but absolutely with with someone trying to make their way in the music industry, I can certainly see where yeah. that would uh, – you give up, you're done. Oh, absolutely. And But personally, never give up because what, I came up with something also when I was going through this, and I call it Dion's Law, okay? So everybody knows what Murphy's Law is, right? Mm -hmm. so Murphy's Law is whatever can possibly go wrong will go wrong. Well, Dion's Law is as bad as things are, they could always be worse. That's what I came up with. when First being disowned by my parents with my brother, and I thought that was bad enough. But then having my brother have a mental breakdown before my very eyes and then have him disappear. So as bad as things were when they first happened, it really did get worse. It got much, much, much worse. And then they got better. And then they got better, exactly. It's because, yeah, you can't give up, never give up hope, and just keep – yeah, just keep trying, and something good will happen, and another door will open. On that note, we are going to call it a interview. <laughs> I appreciate it again. Like I said, uh, we have thoroughly enjoyed it, and I look forward to keeping in touch, hearing more good reports, and hearing the next chapter. Excellent. Looking Thank you, Carol. Keith. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.